Hey friends, Alan Duty here, preaching pastor at New Life. We're delighted to bring you this sermon from our Sunday gathering. For more information or to support our ministry, visit us online at newlifecs.net. Thank you, and enjoy the following message. that's the number. That magical, that mythical number. That number that you, maybe you have on the back of your vehicle somewhere, but at least it's a number that you've seen on the back of vehicles everywhere. On the back of minivans, on the back of SUVs, Sometimes it's right next to the stick figure family or the flip-flop family, right? All the way from the large size flip-flop to the baby flip-flop, 13.1. It's half as much as its bigger brother, but that's what makes it such an achievement. It is that abominable foe because it makes you think that you can accomplish it without ever training. And that is not true. Uh, I have participated in one of these 13.1s. Anybody know what we're talking about? We're talking about a half marathon, of course. Well, I ran two in one day, my first and my last. And uh, now I really ran two, but I'm done with that because uh, the last one was brutal. Why are we talking about running? Why are we talking about marathons? Well, it's the language that Paul uses here in our text. And really, it's the language that Paul uses throughout his writings to help explain this life of faith, this walk of faith. Right? It's a topic that his listeners and his readers would understand. And as a good pastor, he understood that he needed to do all that he could to uh, help the, uh, using this imagery to make this picture vivid for those who are reading his letters, to help it really resonate with them. And it's a subject that we understand as well. Uh, as I said, Think about all the cars that you've seen, these numbers, 13.1, on the back of. Uh, think about that one time per year, that at least one time that our Twin Cities shut down and you have to reroute and not go home for five hours because you can't get there, you know, all of that. But more broadly speaking, as we think about sports in general, think about how many of you are longing, suffering, struggling in the midst of COVID because there are no sports anywhere. You can't watch them. You can't play them. Uh, even though every time I drive by a basketball court, there's usually people there playing without masks. Anyways. And we spend so much time involving our kids in sporting activities as well. And rightly, uh, rightly so, Right? Because we believe in part that what it's teaching them is some really important things about life. What it is to pursue and strive towards a goal. What it means to work towards that goal for a long period of time. What it looks like to work with others to accomplish that goal. And so as we look at this text this morning, I want you to pick up on this imagery 
because it's gonna help make Paul's teaching of the growth process in the Christian life much more vivid, I think, in your mind. What we're gonna learn today is that as citizens of heaven, we must strive to know Christ as we live in a manner worthy of the gospel. As citizens of heaven, we must strive to know Christ as we seek to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. But before we jump into our text, I want to give you just a brief overview of the third chapter of Philippians. I think it's helpful in order to shape our understanding of what is going on in this chapter and how Paul writes it so beautifully. So in the first 11 verses, uh, unfortunately, due to technical difficulties, that is forever lost and gone Uh, from last week, but our dear brother Ryan Anderson preached that text uh, wonderfully well. But in the first 11 verses, Paul's highlighting the Christian's past. He's focusing on his salvation. What does it look like for God to find a person and to change them? And then Paul begins at the end of that text to go into what it looks like for that change to start happening. And then in verses 12 through 16, we see the Christian's present sanctification. So once that change has taken place, this is what it looks like to begin to grow up into that change, to grow into the image and likeness of Christ. In other words, this is the attitude of the Christian who has been saved, right? Elsewhere, Paul says, this is God's will, our sanctification, 1 Thessalonians 4. And then the final section, verses 17 through 21, Paul looks at the Christian's past or glorification. In other words, this is the goal or the destination of those who finish the race, those who complete the task, those who have remained faithful to Christ. Isn't that beautiful, the way Paul writes, the way he lays that out? Past, present, and future. And really, as I've listened to the sermons, as I've been reading through Philippians, as I've been preparing for this morning, I think that our text specifically is really an exposition of what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 27. He's, he's expanding, he's building out what it means uh, in verse 127. This is what he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, or conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, standing in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So in other words, both here in the present and into the future, this is what it looks like. This is what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, being sanctified, being changed into the image of Christ as we look forward, as we wait for his return. And so I think that's what you'll see in, uh, in these verses is it's really an exposition of that first uh, verse 27 in chapter 1. And so as we approach our text, I want to look briefly at a few New Testament passages because I want to help shape our understanding of what sanctification is. I want to help form a definition for sanctification. And so in this fir- at the beginning, we talked about in chapter 3, uh, Paul begins talking about what happened when Christ saved him. And he describes this transformation that begins to happen. Look at chapter 3, verses 7 through 11 on the screen. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth 
don't miss that word, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order what? That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Look at verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So God saves Paul, and then this change begins to happen. We see that Paul's desires begin to happen. How else can you describe when a man says, everything I once valued, I now count as rubbish, right? That's the desires of the heart beginning to change. Through faith in Christ, Paul was beginning to see the world for what it was. It's temporary. It's passing away. It, it is but a moment, and it's a means to a greater end. Look at Romans 8, starting at verse 12. It's a wonderful parallel to the verses that we're looking at this morning. Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For you, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And then just one chapter before chapter 3 and in chapter 2 of Philippians, the second part of verse 12, Paul says this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God begins the work and he wills it and works it in us that we may also work towards this. So knowing Christ, suffering, working out our faith, working hard, pressing in, striving forward, this is all common language that Paul is using to describe the life of faith, the life that is now in the Spirit upon receiving Christ. And so it helps us to wrap our minds around this idea of sanctification. And so here's my definition. Sanctification is the process of growing in the image and likeness of Christ through the power of the Spirit in partnership with God. You see, I think it's clear that there is both happening throughout the Scripture, that God works and changes the person and that he also holds them responsible and calls them to pursue and work out their salvation. And I think that's reflected in this definition. And so now as we jump into verse 12, as we jump into this first section where Paul is describing sanctification, I want to highlight a number of marks of sanctification for us that come out of this text. And the first mark of sanctification is a clear understanding of the goal of the Christian life. 
Like every good athlete or every good runner, he runs with the goal in mind. He runs knowing what he's going towards and he's working towards that end. And so the Christian must understand what he or she is living for, what he or she is striving for. We must know the prize. We must know the goal. It's always before us, just like it's always before an athlete. Think about elite level athletes. They eat, they sleep, they train. Everything they do is to that one end. They will change anything and everything in order to accomplish that goal. And so Paul holds up the prize. He holds up the goal, not a goal, not a potential suggestion on what you might make the goal of the Christian life. No, he's holding up the goal of the Christian life and he's saying, this is, this is, this is it. What is that goal, Paul? The goal is to know Christ. It's what we work for in the present and it's what we gain in the future, to know Christ. Remember back in the previous section, Verse eight, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Again, in verse 10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, becoming like him. This is a, this no is a personal no. It involves loving Jesus and being loved by him. And I think uh, we have a hard time understanding this in our day and age. And, and maybe uh, those who came before us did as well for other reasons, but uh, in our digital revolution, we have a hard time understanding what it means to know. Uh, we are tempted to believe that being known and knowing someone is having a certain status online or getting a certain number of likes. If, if I get there, then... People know me, they see me, they know what's going on, all of that. But that's not the no that Paul is talking about here. The kind of no knowing that Paul is addressing involves time. It involves attention. It involves a level of intimacy that cannot and will not ever be accomplished by surface level interactions, especially online. No, it's the opposite. You cannot become like that which you do not know deeply. You will never become like that which you don't know deeply. That's what Paul's talking about. If sanctification is becoming like Christ and knowing him, that's going to require time, attention, intimacy. It's a well-known stat that in order to be an expert in any field or any area, you have to spend roughly 10,000 hours working in that space in order to what? In order to perfectly know that thing, that area. And so when you apply that to life and relationships, it makes sense. Think about that which you know the best. Chances are you spend a lot of time getting to know that. You've spent a lot of time training or working on that thing. Maybe it's a hobby or maybe it's your career. I was reminded of this just the other day. Uh, My kids have gotten in the habit of um, imitating me, Um, maybe at some level mocking me. 
um, impersonating me for sure. And so what they'll do is they will put their pastor jacket on because that's what this is. They will put their pastor jacket on and they'll stand up and they'll say, hi, I'm Pastor Cody and I'm going to tell you some things, you know? Well, it's silly, but why do they do that? How can they do that? It's because we've spent so much time. They know my quirks, good or bad. They know my personality and they can impersonate me and I can do the same them. That is what Paul is talking about. That is the kind of no that Paul is talking about. And he says, this is the goal of the Christian life. That kind of nearness, that kind of closeness, that kind of knowledge. But why? And how is this possible? Thankfully, Paul doesn't leave us hanging and he helps us answer these questions. Remember Paul's dramatic conversion, uh, Acts 8 and 9. Christ found him while he was persecuting Christians. And in the first part of this chapter, he recounts all that took place when God saved him, that everything he once valued and pursued was meaningless. And then in verse 12, the second part of verse 12, look at this statement he makes. Look at this phrase. He does all of that. He presses into Christ. Why? Because Christ Jesus made me his own. That phrase, made me his own, literally means apprehended. Think about that. Think about that, the imagery. Paul says, I do it all. I do all of this because Christ apprehended me. Do you see it? Christ is the goal, he is the prize, knowing Christ, but he's also the means to that goal. And in that sense, my friends, there is absolute security in the God that we follow, the God that we serve, the God that we believe in, because he is the goal And he is in us from beginning to end. It's God who's making it happen all the way through. And it's critical to understand because this is exactly what sets Christianity apart from every other belief system and religion. It's not about earning, but our effort is based on what Jesus has earned for us. And so let me ask you, Think about that thing or that person that you know the most. How does that compare to your energy, to your efforts, to your priorities when it comes to knowing the King of Kings, our mighty God, our Savior? We all know that we fall short, and that's okay, but it's helpful to consider Because we have so many loves, don't we? But as Christians, we see the first mark of sanctification is knowing him. He's the goal, and he's the means to the end. Well, it's it's important to see the part that we play. I think the first mark really focuses on God and what he has done, right? He is the goal. But the second mark, which is single-minded focus, really helps us to see the part that we play. 
And so Paul says that this is his one aim. He only had one aim, and that was to know Christ. And then what came from that is to make him known. That's his one aim. Look at how Paul says this elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 9. You're going to see this running and this um, athletic imagery. Paul says, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receive the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They, they do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, those who are in Christ, those who are known by God, those who have been changed by God, we're running for a much greater prize and goal. And that is an imperishable wreath. So don't run aimlessly. Church, don't run aimlessly. I do not run aimless. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Such strong imagery. Look at Hebrews 12 on the screen. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, uh, the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see that single-minded focus, that one aim that Paul had? But what is it, and what does it look like? Well, look as, he, as Paul talks about his own attitude. He describes his own attitude here. He says this, I'm pressing on. I'm making every effort. I'm straining forward. I'm reaching forward. He's telling the Philippians that he's not stagnating. He's not stopping until he gains the prize. That is what it looks like. My friends, there is no illusion that the Christian life, growth in Christ, is passive and effortless. That is not in the book. Rather, we are in the midst of a war. It's work. And we will reap what we sow. That is the language that Paul uses here. He was passionate. He was disciplined. And he exerted much effort in his pursuit of Christ, his pursuit of holiness. And one of the reasons that Paul is writing, one of the reasons he's so passionately writing is to combat a perfectionistic way of thinking. There were those who believed that I'm never going to be good enough, and so why even try? As a result, they were apathetic, and they didn't even try. I know I've found myself there, and maybe many of you have as well. And that's one of the reasons Paul's writing this. And Paul says, by no means, absolutely not. Look at how he explains this to the Galatians in chapter 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Listen, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And so the second mark of sanctification is the single-minded focus. So we've seen that it begins with God changing a believer. The sanctification process begins to happen. We have a clear understanding of the goal, which is to know Christ, and we're focused on that goal. We do everything possible, everything necessary to pursue that goal. And what ought to mark our lives is that of humility. And this is the third mark of sanctification. The word humility literally means lowliness of mind. Lowliness of mind. And so I think a helpful definition is humility is lowliness of mind that recognizes one's proper place before a holy God. Remember, it was the gospel of grace that changed Paul, that took a man who was full of pride, a man who boasted in his accomplishments and achievements, to calling them worthless, trash, no good. For a man who had planted, led, discipled, preached, who wrote much of the New Testament, not to mention his persecution and suffering, for that man to recognize that there was still room for growth, that is humility. Because if anyone could say, I'm pretty close, y'all. I mean, I just, there's just not much more room. I mean, it was Paul. And not only did this affect his relationship with his Lord, but it affected the way that he saw and interacted with others. Think about it. If you have nothing to learn, if you know it also to speak, what benefit is anyone in your life? What's the point? What good are they? But in humility... When you understand that there's room to grow, room to change, room for God to work, it not only affects your relationship with the Lord, but it, affle- it, it, it affects the way that you love, serve, and interact with others. 
It required humility to do what Paul encouraged the Philippians to do, namely to forget what was in the past. It seems weird that that's there, right? I mean, what in the world does humility have to do with forgetting the past? Why, why is that the thing uh, that Paul mentioned? Well, look at Paul's resume at the beginning of chapter 3. It's easy to see how he had become prideful for all that he had done, all that he had become. And pride is the opposite of humility. So Paul's encouragement here to forget the past, I believe, is a call not to dwell on past achievements and failures at the expense of present and future growth. So I think the call to forget is an encouragement, is a call from Paul to not dwell on past achievements, past failures at the expense of today and tomorrow. He's not saying, yeah, everything that happened in the past, just forget about it. It's meaningless. Well, if we don't learn from what's happened in the past and we don't grow from what's happened in the past, you're probably going to repeat the past. So he's not saying that. He's saying, don't dwell on it. Don't stay there. It's a matter of focus. And right, this, this makes sense in light of our running analogy, right? That imagery. Is it possible? Can you run a race backwards? Yes. Can you run a race while you're looking backwards? You bet but you're going to be far less effective at reaching the goal, right? And probably going to be dangerous in, uh, in, the, in the process. So if I could offer a few encouragements, a few challenges, as we think about this idea of forgetting past failures and past achievements on failures, the past influences the present, but it doesn't have to determine the future. The past influences the present, but it doesn't have to determine the future. Think about Acts 22.4. Paul says, I persecuted this way. That was what the early Christians were called. I persecuted the church to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Had Paul allowed his past to influence the present and future? he would have been unusable by God. Now, could have God done it another way? Absolutely. But were he to dwell on that, he would have been ineffective. My friends, as you think about your past failures, remember the gospel. Christ has freed you. It's for freedom that he set you free that you would walk by the Spirit, that you would turn from your sin, that you would trust in Christ, that you would make wrong right, yes. Learn from your sin and mistakes, yes. But then move forward by his grace. On past achievements, we must not cling to the glory days at the expense of the present and the future. I could put a picture in your mind. Uh, Napoleon Dynamite, Uncle Rico, anyone? 
right? That's what we're talking about. You can't, you can't go there. You can't stay there. Don't do that. Past victories should never be an excuse to live complacent today. Past victories should never be an excuse to live complacent today. They should never lead to a state of relaxation, self-satisfaction that leads to laziness. No, Christian, you've been freed to focus on being faithful. That's what you've been called to. So thank God for the past and then strive ahead towards the future. Strive to know him and be like him. It's only in Christ that we can have the humility to trust God and not ourselves, not our circumstances. And so Paul's putting forth these characteristics, these marks as marks of sanctification, but they're really marks of maturity. This is what it is to grow up into maturity in Christ, marks of maturity. And over all this, he says, think this way, right? That's his encouragement as he walks through and says, here are the marks of sanctification. He says, think this way. When it comes to knowing Christ, we will never grow in our knowledge of Christ if we do not think. It sounds ridiculous, right? But this is a lost art and skill, and it is plaguing us. We are the most marketed to culture in the history of the world. We are inundated with news clips, sound bites, whatever on YouTube. And our tendency is to regurgitate what we've heard and seen and never, ever think about it. It must not be. Paul says maturity is taking every thought captive, is thinking about what you're seeing, thinking about what you're learning. Think about what's going on in our culture. Everything from COVID to Black Lives Matter. Church, we have to think. Our ultimate authority is Jesus Christ. We know him. We know what he's like. We know what he wants for us as Christians by reading his word. And so we must process all of these things based on what we find in the scripture. Paul says, think this way. Specifically, we won't become like Christ if we don't think on the things of God. And this is the primary purpose of the spiritual disciplines. This is the purpose of the spiritual disciplines. There's no way that we as a church, uh, as a church staff, really any church staff, pastors, leaders, there's no way that we could possibly do all the ministry that God is calling the church, universal church to do. There's no possible way that we could apply the gospel to every situation, every circumstance in your lives and in our lives. And so that's why the whole focus of our church, and I believe the church, our programming, our classes, our leadership, ought to be geared towards making mature believers, helping every single believer know and apply the gospel. 
that we might all be ministers of the gospel, ministers of reconciliation. But in order to do that, we have to think. And it's here that Paul transitions from the present and he starts looking forward to the future, the Christian's future, our glorification. So as those who are now citizens of heaven, because of the saving work of Christ, this is the result of our faith. This is the reward for our effort that as we grow in Christ, we have this great promise that we will be with him and perfectly like him when he returns. And this would have been very applicable for those in Philippi. They were in, Philippi was a Roman colony. It was a little Rome. And so though they were living in Philippi, they were citizens of Rome. They were living in light of their citizenship in Rome. And similarly, as Christians, we are living in this present world, but this is not our home. This is not where our true citizenship lies. This is God's kingdom, but one day we will be taken to God, to to the king and the greater kingdom. And so because of all this, we ought to look carefully then how we walk. Not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time. This is how Paul encourages the Ephesians in chapter five. Why? Because the days are evil. So we must be careful then how we walk. He concludes the section, this chapter, by encouraging, uh, really comparing examples of faithfulness. Right? He holds up those who are mature in Christ to those who by their lives, it's not speculation, but by their lives they show that they are not in Christ. Those who live according to what Paul has said, who are pursuing Christ in this way, and thus they have set a faithful example compared to those who are not. And this, I think, is the fourth mark of sanctification, setting and following faithful examples. It's this Christ-focused, humble ambition that we've seen here described in the first section that Paul is calling mature believers to, those who are in Christ, those who are being sanctified. And it's this example that we ought to model and we ought to follow. And this is consistent with the rest of Paul's teaching, encouraging us and encouraging his readers to imitate him as he imitates Christ. So to the extent that he's living like Christ, he says, follow me. And then Paul offers a clear warning here to those who set their minds on earthly things. This is the opposite of setting your mind on the things of God. It's important to note here that he's writing to a different group than he spoke about in chapter one. If you'll remember, he talks about those who preach Christ, but they do so out of envy and rivalry. In other words, they were preaching the right message, but their hearts were disconnected from that message, right? There was a lot of selfish ambition, selfish motivation. Here, this group in chapter three are those who claim Christ, but are of the world, We would call them hypocrites. They say one thing and their lives show another. Paul calls them pretenders. Their ethic isn't consistent with their profession. 
and ultimately they are enemies of the cross and thus their end is destruction. And so as a result, their values and the way that they lived was antithetical to the sanctified life that Paul puts forward here. It was the opposite of that. And how do we know? Well, Paul says, here are a couple of ways that you can tell. Here are a couple of marks. Number one, their God is their stomach. Literally, their God is their appetite. Their lives are characterized by a commitment to serve their lustful appetite for pleasure. Fill in the blank. Food, sex, money, possessions. Their one aim was motivated by their appetite for the things of God and not God himself. The second mark, their glory is their shame, he says. They were proud of the things that they should have been ashamed of. They didn't enjoy and celebrate the things of God, but rather they enjoyed and celebrated what offended God. And when we hear that, we think, how could they? But my friends, before we go there, think carefully about your own life. They celebrated their sin. They celebrated their greed. They celebrated their disrespect of God and others. They celebrated their laziness. In summary, what Paul is saying is that there are those who claim to know Christ, but by their lives, it's clear that they don't. They're, uh, it's clear that their focus, their excitement, their goals, their aim, their desire, their motivation, their love, their joy, it's for this world. And Paul's warning You'll never be like Jesus by pursuing the world. You'll never be like Jesus by pursuing the world. And that's a timely word for us to hear. And it breaks Paul. My friends, we of all people shouldn't be quick. We should never point the finger. Look at Paul's heart. It breaks him. He comes to tears. May we, not, may we not be God's church, a people who are unloving and ungracious. As we see those dying and going to hell around us, The only way to resist the world is to know Christ. You and I both know we could never change that in and of ourselves, but he did, and that's why we press on to know him. He apprehended us. Well, there's so much we could say. There's so much we have said. Uh, I wish we could spend more time digging into this, sorting through it, but I hope it's been made clear that uh, from our text this morning that as citizens of heaven, we must strive to know Christ as we live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And that means that as citizens of heaven, we're going to continue to grow 
in the image and likeness of Christ through the power of his spirit in partnership with God. With a single-minded focus, we will press on to know him. That with all humility, we may obtain him because he is who we long for. And as we do, we'll set a faithful example of what it is to be a faith-filled people those who are being transformed by the gospel of grace. And so if I could close like Paul close, closes in chapter four, verse one. Therefore, given all that we've said, my brothers, my sisters, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus because apart from him, we can do nothing. We are hopeless and helpless because in and of ourselves, even on our best day, we've earned judgment and separation from you. But praise be to God that Jesus Christ came, the perfect once-for-all sacrifice, one who is able to completely understand as 100% human, 100% God, our weakness, our struggle, and yet promises his own spirit, the indwelling spirit through faith that we might be freed from the flesh and from sin, that we might walk by the spirit. Based on our new citizenship, God, we pray that you would help us to strive, to press on, to reach forward, to not stagnate, to never stop. Until we see you face to face in glory. Only you can do that in us. And we pray that in doing so, God, we would be a faithful example of what imperfect people trusting in a perfect God looks like. Forgive us, God, for the way that we are continually drawn to this world. Forgive us, God, for the ways that we 
want as much of this world as we can and still claim to trust and follow you. We ask for your help that you would be glorified and honored with our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from New Life Baptist Church in College Station, Texas. For more information or to support our ministry, visit us online at newlifecs.net.